heard, basically, I've spent my career in demography. And some people, perhaps many people, not just cynics, um, have, have commented to me over time that demographers are very good at handling numbers and uh, not very good at handling ideas. Now, I think there's, some, there's more than a grain of truth in that, I think. I think that... Um, if you look at membership of demographic societies, the British Society of Population Studies or the Population Association of America or the International Union for the Scientific Study of Population, you'll find that um, a very large fraction of the members are actually official statisticians of some kind or another. That they actually, and so demographers, I think demographers, if they, 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 they're found in all sorts of different academic disciplines but they probably cozy up and feel closest to the people who actually kind of produce the numbers. They actually, so there's a big emphasis on, on quantification. But I think demography can be credited with bringing in and making a great deal of use of two very powerful generalizations. Um, one, the demographic transition, which many of you will have heard of, but I'll talk a little bit about anyway. And another which, again, some of you will have heard of, but fewer people probably will have heard of, the demographic regime. And I'll say a little bit first about demographic transition, and then I want to go on and think about demographic regimes. So I'll, that's the sort of um, scope of the thing. And really what I think um, triggered me in, in, in some of this thinking when the title I chose was... Um, as, you, as, as you heard, a, a sort of a, a nod towards Francis Fukuyama's somewhat debatable idea that a liberal democracy was, was going to steamroll across the world. Um, because um, the United Nations produces populations projections, and they're by far the most cited and referred to population projections for the future. And they've always they've been doing this now since the 1950s, and um, they always used to um, quite sensibly um, not try and go too far ahead with population projections. I mean, pop, you can make and pop, population projections. I mean, aspire to say something about the really quite distant future, but that's possible because we live such a long time. I mean, everybody who's going to be, let's say over the age of 70 um, in the year 2083 is already born. <laughs> so, you know, there's already... A, demography in, inclines you towards a, a long-term view. And the UN used to push forward their projections about 50 years. And that's when it begins to get really... If you, if you study the matter seriously, that's when it begins to get, I think, really quite... Um, very uncertain. Anything beyond about 50 years, you're really getting into a degree of uncertainty that is, is, is of debatable usefulness. But they were told in recent years that they must make projections for 300 years. And the, uh, I actually happen to know some of the people in the, the UN office for the population who make the projections, and they sort of screamed, what do you mean 300 years? And they said, well, the climate change modelers are using climate change models that go for over 300 years because once the CO2 is up there in the sky, it stays there a very long time 
and they want to know what's, what, what the world's going to be like in 300 years' time. They want to know what's going to happen. And if you don't make the projections, they will make some projections. And they don't know anything at all about demography. <laughs> so you, you've got to do it. And in fact, they were instructed, by, indeed, by the Secretary-General that this was required. And so they make projections now for 300 years. Now, if you're going to make projections for 300 years, um, you have to assume you ha that, in fact, the world will converge probably quite quickly to a demographic um, position of no long-run change, a level of fertility and mortality that almost exactly balance each other out, and into a sort of stage of stasis, because if you assume any really significant rate of increase or decrease of the population, then you're going to find enormous differences by the time you've gone out 300 years. So even quite modest rates of population growth extended for 300 years would, um, would lead to you know, changes of the human population by, by you know, well over one order of magnitude. So, and similarly, if you assume a decline um, in a population extended for 300 years, it'll disappear. And the United Nations um, was not keen on projecting the disappearance of any of its member states. So they had to assume a sort of a, a future of total conformity, of con convergence to a future where everybody behaved more or less the same and everybody was available. Now, so it, it had to assume an end of history because it had been other. And of course, they couldn't really say, well, these 50-year projections that we're going to make are the ones we take seriously. <laughs> and those 300-year ones you shouldn't take too seriously. You can't. You couldn't really do that. So they had to, if you're going to assume, if you're going to project for 300 years, you have to start making the adjustments now towards, uh, towards a fairly rapid convergence. And so I feel a considerable sympathy with the United Nations in that. But it caused me to ponder on how... What does come at the end of the demographic transition and how, how we should look at it? Well, for those of you who don't have any background in in, with any population, the demographic transition, as, as you said, I mean, it's, we seem to be having transitions from in just about everything nowadays, but the demographic transition is a term that's used with quite specific meaning among, uh, among people concerned with population. It's a term that was introduced in the 1940s most famously by people working at Princeton. Five Ivy Lane, the Office of Population Research in Princeton, which was being led by Frank Notstein and a number of other US demographers. And in the 1940s, in fact, starting pretty much during World War II, um, the, um, the US government uh, started asking demographers, well, what's the world going to look like after World War II? What's the post-war world going to look like? We're going to assume we're going to win. And so let's think what might happen afterwards. And so they provided research funding of quite a decent, on quite a decent scale for Notstein and his colleagues. And they looked back at trends in population, in fertility and mortality in particular, in Europe and North America, and produced a whole series of very interesting volumes, on, on, particularly on Europe. Um, from about the mid-19th century and onwards, about a 100-year perspective that they were looking at. And there's a graph, which I'll show you in a moment, that um, has, has become sort of a famous 
It's one of the it's one of the most famous graphs in the social sciences. It's a sort of idea of it's a sort of visual representation of the core ideas of, of demographic change. But um, Paul Demain, the Hungarian-born American demographer, I mean, has a tremendous ability for summing things up very succinctly. Um, and he put it quite simply, in traditional societies, fertility and mortality are high. In modern societies, they're low. No definition of what is traditional, what is modern, but anyway. In modern societies, they're low. In between, there's the demographic transition. You know, it's a succinct an idea. But the, the graph that, uh, uh, that sums this up, really, is um, it, it's very simple. At some point in the past, exactly when, depends on which country you're looking at, at some point in the past, if you go back far enough, you find the birth rate and the death rate were rather high, lots of people were being born, but they weren't living very long, and so there was a rough sort of equilibrium between the two. And then, for various reasons, public health improvements, improvements in medical knowledge, perhaps better nutrition to do with better technology of food and so on, the death rate starts to fall. At, at some later date, and I think, it, I think it's fair to say that with, with very few exceptions, we can say it's always at some somewhat later date, the birth rate also begins to fall. There's always a gap. And these two, these two rates fall, birth rate and death rate fall, um, because there continues, there's a continuing process of mortality improvement, which for most of the world continues to this day. I mean, there's some extraordinary uh, stability in the rates of improvement um, in mortality, if you look in, in, in Western European countries and some other, um, as you said, so-called developed countries. Um, and so mortality continues to fall, as, the, as family planning idea, the idea perhaps of a small family being a beneficial thing catches on, so whatever, whatever the, for whatever reason, at some point the birth rate begins to fall, and they fall until, again, you reach an end point where there's some sort of equilibrium. And so, of course, the idea is it's a, tr it's a transition from what you might call a high turnover equilibrium, high rates of birth and death, to a sort of low turnover equilibrium, not many children, but living a long time. And the, and the gap between those two rates is population growth. If there are more babies being born than there are people dying, the population is increasing. And therefore, the, line, the solid line in the middle indicates what's called the rate of natural increase, or the population growth rate. Now, Different countries pass through this kind of process at different times. Some go through it very quickly, some go through it rather slowly. But objectively, this is something that has, has happened and is, or is happening everywhere in the world, basically. This is a, it is a, a generalization. But you can find the process of uh, the detailed process behind, behind all of this varies substantially from country to country, but it is one of the great regularities of, um, of, uh, of the social sciences of human history. Um, well, for, since it's been formulated about 70 years ago, that concept, the concept of the demographic transition, 
has been central, really, to our ideas of what's happening in global population change. It was initially um, developed as a way, as I say, of trying to explain what had already happened by that stage in Europe and North America. Um, but it was very swiftly realised that other countries, the whole world, was going to go through this kind of process. And indeed it has. I mean, many, many parts of the world have, have, have moved sufficiently far through the process of change that we now see that um, most of the world's population lives in countries where fertility is relatively low. If you distinguish sub-Saharan Africa from the rest of, I'm going to call them developing and developed, for sure, I don't believe there's a I don't believe there's any correct term. <laughs> um, rich, poor, well, that's not necessarily right. Uh, more developed, less developed, well, it depends on what you think developing is. Um, I'm going to just call them developing and developed. And you'll have to, you'll have to excuse me, I'm a demographer, so you know, I didn't have the benefit of all the subtle nuances you get from an anthropological education. So, um, Sub-Saharan Africa still has high fertility and people still don't live all that long. You're still at an early stage of demographic transition. Yeah. The rest of the developing world, fertility was estimated in the period of 2005 to 2010 by the UN to be 2.3 children per woman, total fertility number of children per woman. Um, that's probably too high. It's probably less than 2.3. The UN actually, for... Uh, for technical reasons to do with the way they estimate things and the way they do things, they tend to slightly exaggerate fertility in the recent past. So it may well already be 2.1 or something like that in, in the developing world. Life expectancy, 67. The developed world, total fertility, uh, 1.6 but rising, if anything, stable or rising, in the developing world, 2.3 or less, and falling. Still a bit of a gap in, um, uh, a gap in life expectancy. Now, just to give you some simple comparisons, um, um, places that have had very rapid declines in fertility. Fertility is substantially lower, for example, in... I've been doing some work on southern India. If you look at southern India as a whole, you look at the various states of southern India, you take an air, it's about 300 million people. Fertility there is lower in southern India than it is in southern England. People have fewer children. Moreover, the desired fertility is much, much lower. If you ask um, women in the slums of Chennai what's, how many children they'd like to have, the average you come up with as an ideal is about 1.5 children, something of that order. Um, fertility's fallen extremely rapidly and to extremely low levels in many countries. And people have been... Demographers tend to get very concerned when fertility falls below the level <coughs> at which one generation would exactly replace with the previous generation. The so-called idea of replacement-level fertility which is usually a little bit more than two children per woman, conventionally assumed to be 2.1 children per woman. Um, it's always a little bit more because there's always a few more boy babies born than girl babies, and there are always a few people who die before they reach reproductive age, but so 2.1. So demographers tend to get very um, excited when they see a, a country cross that threshold. But in fact, 
um, probably half, <coughs> bless you, half the world's population has been below that level for the last decade, and an increasing fraction. So if we take as an end point of the, the demographic transition, the point at which, again, mortality and fertility are in some sort of approximate equilibrium, most of the world will, will or already is um, in a position that you could describe as post-transitional. They've, they've, they've reached the end point. But there's very little in the, um, uh, in the process of uh, demographic transition that I think really tells you um, what happens next. I've got a graph here, um, which comes from a paper I produced in the online journal Demographic Research. And we're normally used to seeing demographic transition expressed in terms of time. Well, if you look at the timing of change, you see it's very different. In some things happen at diff you know, in different parts of the world at different times. Um, moreover, the speed of both mortality improvement and fertility decline varies from place to place. But if instead of looking at time, you just simply compare fertility and mortality, You've got mortality on the horizontal axis here, with like life expectancy, on average, how long people live. Total fertility, how many children they have. You can see that in these big, if you, in the big broad sort of regions of the world that the UN uses, um, there's an extraordinary similarity. Of course, there is, there's some variation. The red line there for East Asia shows some tremendous um, disc. You know, very rapid changes because China, which dominates East Asia, had a very rapid decline in fertility. Not, not mostly due to the notorious one-child policy, incidentally. It happened before that was introduced, mostly. Um, but you can see some extraordinary similarities. The green line representing North Africa and West Asia is almost indistinguishable for much of its trajectory from the yellow line representing Latin America. In other words, the process of demographic transition, the relationship between mortality and fertility, um, seems to be very similar in, in many, many parts of the world. I mean, a big ex a, a num one thing that stands out, of course, though, is that sub-Saharan Africa is still at a very early stage of demographic, de demographic transition and has a, still has a long way to go. Um, that will mean that, in fact... <coughs> Um, most of the population growth that we're going to see in this coming century will be in sub-Saharan Africa. Each of these lines is a trajectory composed of, of points representing how you got from 1950 to 2010. Okay, so two discrete five points. It's two, it's discrete, it's, you know, they're five years, they're actually five years. The UN's best guess, every five years, what was, the what was the fertility level? What was the mortality level? Oh, okay, so the two discrete time points were estimates. Uh, yeah, five exactly. So the five years apart. So, so some parts of the world have whizzed through this very quickly. Um, East Asia, most famously. Some parts of the world are going much more slowly. Sub-Saharan Africa, for example. So <coughs> it's, but it suggests that, you know, that the, the mortality change and the fertility change are strongly related. Um, there are some interesting or tragic exceptions to this. <coughs> Southern Africa, which appeared to be making steady progress because of HIV-AIDS, has had a great reversal and 
life expectancy in South Africa and its immediate neighbours is probably 25 years less than it would have been had that not been for HIV AIDS. So that's one exception. The Soviet Union from about 1960 and then the post-Soviet states from the 1990s have also seen interesting point. Fertility has continued to fall, but mortality has, has stopped improving and in fact worsened in many cases. Life expectancy, for example, for men in Russia today is less than it was 50 years ago. So there are some exceptions to this. It's, it's, um, you, know, you have to be... You, you have to at least say that the demographic transition is by far, the, the, as we conceive of it, by far the majority experience of the world. But there are some very major exceptions that you have to bear in mind in terms of the idea of progress. I'll, ign um, I'll ignore these ellipses for a minute and I'll come back. Anyway, um, first the point about like, completing the transition. I'll say what follows the transition, but let me just tie up the loose end, as it were. Where, where is the transition not yet completed? Uh, overwhelmingly, that's sub-Saharan Africa. On the UN's estimates, 38 of the 43 countries that had the highest fertility in the world are in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the others are you know, Afghanistan, Yemen, East Timor, and, you know, a few other... Um, okay, but basically, the overwhelming, by far the largest population that still has high fertility is sub-Saharan Africa. And the slow speed that Africa's moving through the transition will mean that the population there will continue to grow rapidly for a very long time. Um, there may well be cultural factors behind that, that, that transfertility in Africa is somewhat different from other parts of the world, but it's also clear that the very weak health and reproductive health systems that are available in sub-Saharan Africa is playing a role. But whatever the reason, we're going to, there's going to be a lot of population growth um, in Africa over the coming, coming decades ahead. Now, when we, look, when we say, well, what happens after the future? I think we have to realise that the transition itself, in some ways, um, may not tell us very much about the future. Um, the lines I showed you, the different world regions, all seem to pass through the transition in somewhat similar ways. And everywhere, and in particular, everywhere gets a lot of population growth. You know, so you, you get a lot of population growth. Um, above all else, the, demo, the demographic transition is an era when the population grows enormously. I mean, in my lifetime, the world's population has more than doubled. I know I'm quite old, but I'm not, not that old. But, you know, when I was born, there were about 2.7 billion people in the world. Now there are about 7.2 billion people in the world. It's seen enormous population growth. But that's going to end. If fertility and mortality get, you know, get back into some sort of equilibrium, we're not going to see population growth. And in fact, um, for most parts of the developing world, um, the population growth we will see in the future is, is largely to do with what demographers call demographic momentum. Basically, if you have a lot of children, when they grow up, even if they only have two children per woman over a lifetime, or even less than two, that's still quite a lot of people. And so you end up with a, a degree of population growth. Um, but for most of the world, um, uh, we're moving into an era of very low population growth, perhaps even population decline. 
And again, the explanations why the transition happens um, may, may not tell us all that much about the future. For and a good example, I think of this is the the rise in sex-specific abortion that we've seen in Asia and indeed even in some parts of Europe, even to a, to a, very, to a, to a small degree, even in this country. Um, what's happened is that um, as it's become relatively um, cheap and, and uh, for, for couples to find out the sex of an unborn, unborn child at quite an early stage of the pregnancy and in situations where it's easy, for, again, it's fairly easy for them to have an abortion. In some parts of the world, places where there, there are long traditions of son preference over daughters, you see a very differential um, uh, abortion rates with many more female fetuses being aborted than male. And so you see, um, uh, we see some very strange sex ratios. Um, that's not something that any version of the demographic transition theory um, would have predicted. And yet, if you knew more of the history of those societies, running all the way from Albania and Bosnia, right across through the Middle East, North Africa, sorry, not North Africa, um, Northern India, um, and up into China, if you'd known more of the, the pre-transitional history, it, it might have, it would have, you know, the, it would, might help you have expected that. So from the transition, I want to go and talk about demographic regime. Demographic regimes are defined by the Dictionary of Demography, and I know that must be right because I edited it, um, as a particular combination of interrelated demographic, uh, demographic characteristics that pertain. So mortality, fertility, and migration are in some way linked. So the trends in one and are, are related to trends in the other, and we'll see how that works out in, in, in detail, I think. Um, demographers aren't used to looking at thinking of the world in this term. Historical demographers, pre, people looking on pre-transitional populations, are the ones who've tended to use this kind of approach. Demographers working on contemporary populations have not. But I think, it's, I think it's potentially very valuable to take a more holistic approach, to look at um, the way in which these factors work together. And I'll show you some examples um, of why I think it's, it's useful. And it's clear from looking back at the past that, these, that the, in these demographic regimes, what you see are um, close relationships between the demographic outcomes and various social, economic, and cultural institutions. They sort of, the, the demographic patterns only make sense when you understand them in a cultural and socioeconomic context. So I think that that's a, a, a key point. Um, briefly, as I say, pre-transitional populations have, um, is where people have looked at this in most detail. And I think you can, there are many, many differences, of course, between the world, let's say, England in 1750 and uh, the world today or something like this. There's some, you know, but there are, nevertheless, I think some important points. Um, the past, before the transition, the past was generally an era of very low population growth. We know that true, must be true logically. I mean, those of you who've done evolutionary anthropology know that you know, we as a subspecies of humans appeared 150,000, 200,000 years ago, something of that order. Well, if there'd been 
anything other than incredibly low rates of population growth, there'd be a lot more of us than, than there are around the world. It took all of human history to about 1800 to reach 1 billion. Um, so, you know, over the long run, human population growth has been very low. And that means, on average, roughly two surviving children per woman. So, it, in a sense, you could say most of human history um, has been, an, have been situations of small families in terms of small numbers of surviving children. Of course, that was done in a very inefficient way, having lots of babies, many of whom died. But nevertheless, the, the idea that the past um, was dominated by large families is quite misleading. It's, uh, I think that's an important point. Life expectancy, we can see it very tough by modern, by modern situations. Fertility, not generally speaking all that high. Again, compared with some populations that we've seen, fertility range between four and six children per woman. But um, another very important point is when you try and understand the regimes, migration was crucial. In pre-industrial context, in the pre-transitional context, um, for example, cities were a disaster. They were a demographic disaster. Um, basically, if you crowd lots of people, to put people together... Um, without the benefits of lots of vaccines for the, for the diseases that they're going to spread to each other, you're going to kill people. London was a net killer of people until some point in the 18th century. Um, you know, so areas, the economically and politically important places, have always depended on immigration. Um, it's just that in the past, they may have brought in people from a relatively small hinterland, but as time has gone on, the hinterlands have got bigger and bigger and bigger. So migration has always been an important part in terms of understanding demographic regime. And um, the social and economic cultural institutions that underpinned these kinds of, these kind of rough balances between mortality and fertility varied a lot from country to country, but they all had them. And now the, t the last point there's a bit technical, but strict, what, what we can show is that it's not a simple, what was going on was not just a simple Malthusian homeostasis. It was a much more complicated process than that. That's a little bit. After the transition, what we see are some big differences, but still also similarities, some, 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 I think, important similarities. Of course, we have much longer life expectancy. You know, life expectancy for the world as a whole is now 70 years or more, much, much higher. One, that's a very important point because it means that if most people are surviving till right through the reproductive ages, it, life expect, uh, changes in mortality have rather little to tell us about population growth. They have a bit to tell us at uh, the older ages, but not as, as important as it was in the past. It certainly was much more important in the past. Fertility, when we can see after the transition, can be extremely variable. You know, we have countries where... The, where the average number of children per woman is one. That's not China. That's it's Hong Kong. Uh, there's never been a, a one-child policy in Hong Kong. There's, in fact, there's never been a terribly kind of doctrinaire family planning policy at all in Hong Kong. Um, and yet fertility there is 0.9 or something of that order. Um, the Indian census of 2011 revealed that the average family size in Calcutta is 1.2. So, you know, fertility can get very, very low. But it's also the case that 
post-transition, you can still have baby booms. The, the baby boom of the 1950s and 60s followed a baby bust of the 1930s. Fertility was below the level of replacement in many European countries in the 1930s. And in fact, every informed thinker in the social sciences, including very famous people like John J.M. Keynes, took for granted that population decline was an inevitable part of the future. Um, you know, Keynes, Keynes, you know, Keynes can be quoted, can be found, you can find quotes. David has a very interesting point where he looked at some work, you, a commentary on some of Keynes' uh, lectures and things that he's given, where he's saying there's, very, there's various things that, um, uncertainties about the future, but one thing we know for sure, there's going to be population decline. <laughs> he was wrong because you have a baby boom. That was a post-transitional phenomenon. So there can be great variations in the levels of fertility over time, but we can also see over space. It's also important that we have to look at migration. Migration plays a crucial role. In many rich countries of the world today, fertility is low, but there's a lot of, immig there's lots of immigration, which in some sense compensates for the very low fertility. The idea of replacement migration just is a reality in much of... Uh, much of the richer world, particularly in Europe. And thus, when we're understanding what happens after the transition, I think the two most important things are to understand the interplay of fertility and migration. Mortality, it, it's, it plays an important, mortality plays an important role in, in understanding the process of ageing. Um, there's been much more progress with mortality, and life expectancy has continued to improve much longer than many people expected. That's why past, that's part of the reason everybody's pension system is bust. But most importantly, I think, um, understanding the relationship between fertility and migration and their combined effects uh, is very important. Now, we know very little about what post-transitional societies look like or will look like in the developing world. Now, there's a lot of developing countries now that have very low fertility, but it's still a very recent phenomenon. It's only in the last decade or so. Generally speaking, um, places that have had, that we could call post-transitional, the, are the rich world, <laughs> broadly speaking, or countries which we can probably fairly safely assume will be rich, like China. Um, and they tell us that there are some very distinct and very different regimes. If you look at what I've called the Anglosphere, English-speaking world, USA, Australia, New Zealand and UK, um, plus Northwest Europe, I'll show you exactly what I mean by that in a moment, um, we see fertility has actually never fallen very, very low. It's a little bit below the replacement level. It's been below the replacement level in this country for 40 years. But it's never been very, very far below replacement level. It's typically been, if the replacement level is 2.1, we've probably been averaging something like 1.8 or something for the last 40 years. So it's, once you add on to that moderate um, immigration, let alone high levels of immigration, what you see is significant population growth, and that's what we've been seeing in that area. The German-speaking world, Germany, uh, or predominantly German-speaking Switzerland and Austria, Low, low fertility, considerably lower than we see in the northwest, but, but so again, balanced off by lots of, quite a lot of immigration. Southern Europe, um, low fertility, and really quite high levels of immigration. Spain, for example, extraordinary levels of immigration through the 1990s and down to the economic crisis. Exactly 
there's a bit of a hiccup now. Assuming Spain gets its act together again and the economic growth starts again, it's very likely to continue as a big destination. In Eastern Europe, low fertility again, but moderate to high emigration. With the, basically, as soon as communism ended, Eastern Europeans began to move to the West, and in some cases, very substantial movements. And in East Asia, we see a situation of very, very low fertility, fertility far below the placement level, and very little immigration to compensate for that. So potentially we're seeing very substantial population decline in East Asian countries because fertility is way below the replacement level. Um, a fact made even more um, evident by the fact that in, in quite a number of the East Asian countries, sex ratio has been distorted. And so that if you, if you don't just look at children per mother, per woman, but you look at daughter per woman, mother, you find even bigger differences. So we see these different regimes. And we don't know how long-term these things will go on, but they've persisted for some decades already. I mean, for t the, the northwest pattern of relatively high fertility, as I say, just below replacement level with migration, that, that's the way we've been doing things for about 40 years. Um, so we can see very significant differences in the way in which population, um, potential population growth. I'm very dubious about the idea of population policy. That's something I'm very, I'm very concerned about. I um, um, certainly um, populations such as China's birth policy. <laughs> I don't, think you ha I don't think you have to be a fanatic about human rights to think that the Ch Chinese government's birth policy over, of, over the last 30 years has been a uh, very debatable value. I mean, it's, uh, it's also of very dubious demographic value. I mean, China is now going to um, lessen to some extent the strictures of its so-called one-child policy. Um, but um, and that's very recent. It's, it's still just beginning to happen. Yet, for a decade... Um, China, or more, maybe 20 years, China's had below replacement level fertility. <laughs> um, and yet you've been seeing all kinds of these cases of compulsory abortions and all kinds of things. It's been a very dubious, dubious policy. But there's, um, if you're going to think of a good aim for a population policy, it should perhaps be to stabilise the population so that you don't have either rapid growth or rapid decline. Rapid growth, we all know the problems that come about with that. But rapid decline can also be an extremely socially and economically um, uh, confusing and uh, difficult situation. In terms of the explanations, if we look at fertility first, the, um, the most widely held view is that a number of key issues, to some extent economic, but principally in the area of gender relations and social policy are very influential. If you look at the countries with the, uh, among, this is, I'm, I'm looking at the games, I'm keeping just looking at the rich world, if you like. This is particularly true in, um, in Europe. The countries with the better gender, or the sort of where you have the more equitable gender relations tend to have the higher, or the ones that tend to have a higher fertility. Um, Places where, one way or another, either through private means or public means, it's possible for women to combine working with having a family, have more children. Places where that is more difficult, they have fewer children. 
So um, if you look at how much governments potentially give in age to families with children, the OECD has done some comparisons, and you can see a very clear relationship. The societies where the welfare state helps families with children quite a bit tend to have high fertility. But only those ones where you have an acceptance of mothers working as well as, uh, as, well as fathers. Uh, if you look at Germany, where a lot of the welfare system is set up on the assumption that you have what's called the traditional male breadwinner model of society, daddy goes out to work and mummy stays at home, they don't have, Germany doesn't have high fertility. They don't get many children for their, for their euro, as it were, in terms of social policy. Whereas if you look at... Um, so you, you, so that's, these are the kind of regions I'm just quickly talk about. We know more about Europe and these different regimes um, than many other parts of the world. Northwest Europe is this kind of blue area. I'm, I'm talking principally about members of the European Union here, because uh, Southern Europe across there, the eastern, by the east here I mean countries that joined the European Union in 2004, 2007, 2008, and the German-speaking countries in the middle. And just look how, to my mind, how striking these fertility differences are. This is the level of total fertility, children per woman. Just look, I mean, how the Northwest really jumps out at you, it seems to me, as, as a place of relatively high fertility. All the rest of the European Union, fertility is in this pale, which indicates fertility, um, substantially lower fertility. So there's a really, and it's really striking. I mean, the Pyrenees, it's extraordinary. I mean, one side of the Pyrenees, people have two children, the other side they have 1.2 on average. It's, you know, it's extraordinary differences. It strongly argues, the fact that there are these very clear national differences strongly argues, it seems to me, that national policies are playing an important role in, and national policies and national culture um, play a very important role. And in Europe, or in the candidate members, if you want to find fertility above replacement level, you've got to go to eastern Turkey. Again, um, that's the only bit, that's the only substantial area that has still fertility above 2.1. Um, so you really see these different... In terms of fertility, there's one high fertility zone. N not so much difference in the rest of the European Union, but there's very big differences in the migration. East Asia, I'm sorry, I, I stole this graph off somebody else, so I couldn't play with it to make it so obvious what the, the lines are. East Asian countries, the blue is Hong Kong, um, the red is mainland China, and the green is Singapore. You also have South Korea and Taiwan. Um, instead of saying th this, each of those countries passed the replacement level at a different time. It happened first in Singapore, then in Hong Kong, then in, then in Taiwan, South Korea, and mainland China. If you ignore, <clears throat> if you just backdate it, as it were, so they all start at the same time, you see they're all starting, this is replacement level here, when did they pass replacement level? Um, they're all heading down. The Chinese government believes that if it takes the one-child um, family away, there'll suddenly be a big jump up in that red line. I'm very dubious. Um, even the government of Singapore, which... If any government is prepared to interfere in the, uh, the, um, the private lives of its citizens, it's the government of Singapore. Um, even they have been unable to talk up the level of fertility. Or it, basically, it seems family planning programs around the, the world that have encouraged women to have fewer children seem to have been very, very successful. 
it seems to be relatively easy. If you make family planning available and say to women, don't you think maybe a small family might be a good idea? They agree quite quickly. <laughs> um, it seems to be impossible in the long run, so far anyway, um, to say you should have more babies, have more babies than you want. I, when I was living in Australia, the, uh, there was a very successful politician. He was the Premier of Victoria, Jeff Kennett. He went to give an address at the graduating class of a high school, of a private, well-known private girls' school in Melbourne. And he said, when you grow up, don't forget you have to have your career, but don't forget you have to have babies as well. It's important, important as well. His popularity plummeted. From winning a landslide election, he was routed at the next election. Um, it's, you know, <laughs> nobody has a trick of increasing fertility. Nobody in the long run. If you say to women, well, if you have, an ex if you have a baby, here's 10,000 euros. They say, ah, oh, well, we were thinking of having a baby anyway, so okay, let's have the, let's have the money. And then, you know, then they, that's it, thank you very much. And so you see a blip, and then it goes down again. There's lots of places where you see policies where you get a blip, but it goes down again. And long run, nobody seems to be able to talk up fertility or to find policies that can, can do it. Okay. Um, one... One point out is that the evidence from East Asia there and from some parts of Southern Europe is the end point of demographic transition was always thought of as equilibrium. Fertility and mortality roughly being in balance, about two. There's increasing evidence that there are places where if what's happening is a trade-off from quantity to quality of children, instead of having lots of children, you have a small number and give them every possible resource you can, help their education as much as you can, well, the logical trade-off is one child. And there's a lot of evidence, I think, that um, in many parts of the world, certainly in East Asia, um, one child is becoming, you know, is becoming the norm. Anyway, migration. This is another, I think, key element. Um, it can have really fundamental impacts, both at a national level and at regional levels. Everywhere in Europe's had fertility below replacement level for some decades now. Um, but the rich countries have basically not seen population decline or only a very, very modest extent because we've had a lot of immigration. We all, we all know that. Eastern Europe, they're seeing pop some, some are seeing rapid population decline because of emigration. Uh, I, why, I mean, surely the same kinds of things are likely to be seen in other post-transitional transitional places around the world. Just quickly... To show you before I wind up, I'll wind up showing you some examples using a very simple measure, which if you're interested in the technicalities I can talk to you about afterwards, called an overall replacement ratio, where I try and estimate the extent to which migration is adding to or subtracting from fertility in terms of the replacement of generations. As is usual with these kinds of rates, I set it up so one is the replacement. When one is exact replacement. Less than one means decline, potentially declining. It means, it's, it means that people are moving out. Um, if, it's, if the land's going down, it means pe people are moving out. If the land's going up, it means people are moving in. And I'll just show you examples. I said those four different regimes in Europe. I'll show you examples of four different countries in those regimes. The UK. OK, 72. These are w women born in 1972. Baby girls born in 72. We were already above replacement level. So, but 
we fell by 1970, um, by cohort 1975, fertility had fallen. So this is about, you know, we've been having about, on average, about 1.8 children per woman. So that's about 0.9 daughters per mother, something like that. As you'll know, if you're not British, until you get to about age 18, it's not very easy to get into Britain. Once you're 18, and you can see some rapid increases. All of these cohorts are passing replacement level. We're all basically, if there's population growth happening in Britain, essentially it's because of immigration. Um, fertility otherwise would be, would be low. You see the same kind of thing perhaps in the German-speaking countries. They vary a bit, but Switzerland is a classic example. Really quite low fertility. Uh, well, well below replacement level of fertility. Every cohort passing fertility level, continuing to get population growth. Spain, representative of the south, not much migration for a long time. And then, beginning in the 1990s, sudden increases, tremendous increases in migration. In the 10 years before the beginning of the financial crisis that, to hit Spain, Spain had more immigrants than births. That's uh, not a situation that most European countries have ever found themselves in previously. But if you look at Eastern European countries, and Bulgaria is this example, what you see is these declining lines. Um, there are some sudden discontinuities in these lines, some of which are genuine, actual, big mass emigrations. There was a big, in the 1980s, Bulgaria basically threw out a load of ethnic Turks, forced them to move to Turkey. Uh, so some of these are genuine. Some are to do with data problems. Um, but if you look at the cohort born in 1975, for example, by the time they were 35, that had decreased by about 25%. But since then, fertility's fallen very low. It's already starting at only 60%. If, if, that, if the cohort born in 1995 <laughs> declines by 60%, you're going to have extremely rapid population decline in a country like Bulgaria. It's going to be, I mean, it's, it's really a, a striking phenomenon. And it's by no means the only East European countries. Within countries, you can see even bigger changes. This is the, exactly the same calculation, but instead of looking at the UK, I'm just looking at London and the southeast. Fertility a little bit above not point about, you know, suggesting a little bit, it's not, it's not far below replacement, but fertility, up until not much change by 15 to 19, and then, shoom, um, basically, sorry? This is, and this, sorry, for the UK, it was just international. For London, and, and for the next one I'll show you, which is the rest of the UK, this includes, the this includes in internal. So you have both people moving from places in the rest of the UK, plus international people moving into, into London and the southeast. And basically, between the ages of about 18 and 35, the number of people born in, say, you know, in any one of these cohorts goes up by 50%. You get 50% growth over, those, over the early adult years. Tremendous increase. And if you look at the rest of the UK, you see absolutely nothing. Um, basically, all the population growth that's happening in the UK <coughs> is happening in London and the southeast, basically. Um, so when Mr. Cameron is saying 
We want everyone to know Britain is full. I doubt he's ever seen that graph. Um, but that's at the back of his mind. That's what, he's, that's what he's thinking. When Alex Salmond, the First Minister of Scotland, is saying, we want people to know Scotland isn't full, that's at the back of his mind. Um, it's just conceivable Alex Salmon might have seen that graph, might have seen that graph, because I gave a presentation to some of his scientific advisors in Edinburgh, so it's just conceivable that he might have seen that graph. Um, so let me finish with just um, the very last, um, my very last sort of slide. Um, far from the end of the demographic transition being the end of history, um, it seems to me it may be bringing in an era of much greater um, diversity. The demographic transition basically is a time when you get population growth, and everywhere is the same. Everywhere's pop everywhere's growing. You know, every over the world. After after that, you see a very very different situation, both within countries um, and internationally. You may see. Obviously, we're very aware of the great urbanization that's taking place in China, for example. People moving, especially from the west of China towards the rich east and to the cities. But the same kind of thing's happening in many other places. I gave a presentation in Kerala, at a conference in Kerala 18 months ago. And the hotel we stayed at, um, the Keralans uh, who were there, the Keralan statisticians and demographers who were there were complaining because no one, apart from the manager of the hotel, could understand Malayalam, the uh, local Kerelan language, because everybody in the hotel was a migrant from somewhere else in India. In fact, mostly from the northeast. And I asked about this, and they said, yes, the, it's apparently the, the, cage, the, um, the hotel and restaurant industry, they, they're very much like migrants from the northeast because they have very pale complexions. And that's a very good thing, so they, if in, in Indian terms. So, um, but you're seeing tremendous internal migration in many countries as well. So we're seeing, we may well be in an era of very great di uh, demographic diversity and possibly very rapid population decline, if, um, certainly in East Asia, unless something, unless East Asia, unless there are dramatic changes in terms of the level of immigration into East Asia, or alternatively, fertility rises very, very remarkably, um, we're going to see population decline. I don't think we're going to see population decline. I think we're going to see a great deal of immigration. I think East Asian countries are, are going, you're, be, you're beginning to, see, you're already beginning to see it in South Korea. Um, South Korea recently elected the first member of parliament who had originally come from the Philippines. So the first, there's clearly a substantial migration from the Philippines and from some other parts of Asia. But if you're looking ahead in the 21st century, where are people going to find um, migrants from? They're going to find them from Africa because that's where the population is going to grow. Um, it's entirely possible that a hundred by, you know, by the end of this century, I won't get to see it. Some of the younger members of you in the audience, you might be, still, be, still be around at the end of the century. Um, it's possible that half the world will be African. They won't all be in Africa. They'll be everywhere else as well. Um, I think there's going to be a very, very substantial migration flow from sub-Saharan Africa to East Asia, for example. I think it's quite likely we're going to see one of the biggest migrations of human history. Um, because otherwise, you're going to have very, very rapid population decline and extremely rapid aging, therefore, as a result 
if you basically if your workforce declines very rapidly and your people above pensionable age increases very rapidly you're in you're in real trouble and um, I think we're going to see that um, and so it's uh, I think we're actually looking ahead at an era of great diversity um, far from being the end of history this almost might be the beginning of a new history so leave it to that thank you, thank you.